We are delighted to have you all here this afternoon. I'm Susan Braun, the Executive Director here at Commonweal. And I don't know, some of you I think have maybe per have perhaps not been to a new school event before. So I'll tell you just a bit about what the new school is and what Commonweal is. Um, Commonweal has been here in the Point Reyes National Seashore for 32, 33 years, doing work in about 12 different major project areas that essentially all center around healing human beings, healing the planet. So we do work, we do cancer health programs, we have a collaborative on health and the environment. The Institute for the Study of Health and Illness, whose offices they are kindly allowing us to share their space on a Thursday. And the new school is really an open learning experience for people in the community. We offer um, the events free for people to be able to come and learn a variety of um, things. We, we um, we have events in different topic areas, and perhaps as importantly as the gatherings is the fact that we have recordings of all of the events on our website. So at commonweal.org, you will find uh, hundreds, I guess. Where's Kira? How many? Hundreds of recordings of new school events, um, and we hope that you'll be able to listen to some of those that you might have missed in person. So I will introduce our, our speaker and interviewer in just a moment, but a couple of housekeeping details, please. If you have cell phones, if you would please turn them off. There are restrooms. There's one on this floor, three downstairs. And let's see. I think that's about all. I want to introduce a couple of other people before we get started. Ken Adams, who is always here with us to record the events. Thank you, Ken. Kira Epstein, who's at the back, who many of you know is the coordinator of the new school. And Michael Lerner in the back, who is Commonweal's president and one of the founders. And now I am pleased to introduce to you Eric Karpolis, a member of our board of directors and a renowned artist and writer, who will then introduce to you our guest speaker to today, Anna Devere Smith. So welcome to both of you. To you, Eric. Thank you all for coming out on this gorgeous day. Welcome again. I feel very honored to be here with uh, Anna Devere Smith, who I think is uh, one of the great lights of the current cultural climate, if climate indeed has a light. Uh, and I want to start by saying, for those of you that don't know, that uh, Anna has a show at Berkeley Rep right now called Let Me Down Easy, which is running until July 10th and is very difficult to get tickets for. And as a result of that, Berkeley Rep has just announced that from August 10th, for four weeks, there will be another block of shows. So. so, as Anna said, let them buy tickets. <laughs> um, another plug I wanna make is uh, for 
Anna's two books. One is called uh, Letters to a Young Artist, uh, which is a very beautiful book in the style of uh, Rilke's Letters to a Poet. Essentially, if you know anyone who is young and uh, kind of poised on the brink of a career in the arts, this is a very meaningful book, very helpful, uh, beautifully written, very well felt. Uh, and I don't think there's anybody who doesn't know somebody young who's a poised <laughs> a brink of a career in the arts these days. Um, okay. Um, I am going to begin, well, let me talk a little bit about Anna first. Um, Anna might be known to you uh, from her uh, television or film roles. She's currently in a series called Nurse Jackie. She appeared on something called West Wing. She has been in the movies The American President, The Human Stain. Um, but by and large, her presence is one in the uh, American theater. And she has carved a remarkable career on, with her own two hands, essentially. Found a place for herself, made a niche. And uh, it's something that I find very harmonious with some of the work that is done at, at Commonweal in the sense of uh, uh, inner resources, nature, culture, the environment. Uh, so she is a teacher. She has uh, graced the halls of academe uh, all the way up the ladder. She's been at Harvard, Stanford, Yale. She's currently at NYU. Um, she has had a very, she has made use of what she's created and made a, cast a very wide net. She's on the board of directors of the Museum of Modern Art. She's affiliated with the Aspen Festival. Uh, she does good works. She's traveled around the world. Uh, and I am uh, very pleased to, to, to be her, to, to be with her and to know her. And we know her largely through her characters. Her one-person plays are essentially transcripts. They're composed of interviews given verbatim of people that she has sought out around, often around an event or an issue. Uh, and the Let Me Down Easy Play is the 18th in a series of ongoing work that she calls On the Road, Search for American Character. So these have all been different manifestations. Each play basically deals with individual voices, and the accumulation of each of these individual voices creates a whole. But I'm going to start now and go to the personal uh, Anna Devere Smith a little bit and work up from there. And I want to read you some uh, text from uh, Talk to Me, which is her book about the uh, process she went through in creating a, a show called uh, House Arrest, which is about Washington and the, the kind of politics of power. Uh, it is interspersed, like all of her work, it kind of stops and starts and picks up somewhere and then comes back. And it's beautifully composed with uh, parts of herself and parts of other people. This is headed Baltimore, circa 1959. For most of my childhood, I looked out on a graveyard. There was the sight of the graveyard and the sound of the train. The graveyard looked like the end of the universe, but the train sounded like eternity. 
One afternoon, something happened in the graveyard that brought all of us to our back porches. It was stunning enough that we all stopped what we were doing. Whenever there was a funeral, it was as if the white people suddenly invaded our neighborhood. This was before the 60s, so nothing about the pomp of the Catholic Church was yet watered down. The priests wore elaborate hats, they burned incense and spoke Latin. Most of the blacks in the neighborhood were Baptist, Methodist, or some kind of Protestant. So across the way, we could see an almost Fellini-esque grouping of white people, <laughs> some in robes, standing outside the dramatic entourage of cars that had driven up the hill into the cemetery. The funeral was nearly over when a lone car pulled up and our backyards burst open with the sound of a woman wailing. I remember chills going up my spine. Everyone gathered from whatever disparate part of the house they had been in. It was the funeral of someone we knew nothing about, and yet we were saddened. Somehow, along the grapevine, we learned that the wailing woman had come from out of town and had just missed the funeral of her father. She had to be held back from the grave. We watched as she was taken by each arm back to her car. This was an important moment because in spite of what I was learning about white people and how different we were and how different I could imagine the circumstances of this woman and I felt for her. In the 60s, there was an expectation that education was the answer to racial strife and inequality. Excuse me. The idea was that if we all were educated, I can't believe this. <laughs> Excuse me. The idea was that if we were all educated, we could, all, we could have all the advantages of the American dream. My education was the product of that idea. Along with that, an important bonus was the notion that having gotten to know one another, we would make a better, more equalized society. <laughs> what happened? In those days when I stood on the porch, I had more empathy than I have on this day with my terrific education. In those days, watching those few white people who came out of the graves of their loved ones, my curiosity was enormous. My heart was an open heart. Education did not make me a more empathic person. It made me a tougher person. Education gives us more facts, more evidence, but it does not give us more empathy. I suggest that knowledge will not save the world. We have shrunken hearts. America needs heart surgery. So uh, <clears throat> that was written and published in Talk to Me, uh, which came out in the year 2000, which was before Let Me Down Easy was conceived. And it's amazing to me how this shows the through line in Anna's work. Um, and I would like you to talk a little bit, if you would, if I can stop crying, <laughs> um, 
in your, your interviews and your research and your reaching out to people for um, information and crafting these theater pieces that you do, you talk a great deal about um, having to listen. And I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about how uh, in segregated Baltimore, where you grew up, uh, you really had to listen in a different way. Listen for nuances, listen for things sometimes that weren't said, uh, and how that helped you and continues to help you in, in what you do. Hmm. That's a really wonderful question, and it makes me think uh, uh, not so much about my upbringing. At, at the immediate place I went is a Zimbabwean choreographer named Nora Chipamori, very beautiful dancer and choreographer. Can everybody hear me okay? And um, she was a, uh, a, um, a fellow at a, a, a week-long conference that I put together, a 10-day conference I put together in New York. And um, at a certain point when she talked about her upbringing and her sense of movement, she talked about being in Zimbabwe and how she had to watch authority and the difference between watching authority in public, watching white authority, and watching the authority figures of her community. And she saw the watching of the authority figures in the community as one of a kind of uh, reverence that didn't bother her, um, I guess because it was uh, ingrained in the community, but the watchfulness of the white people being really more about figuring out where to go and where not to go. And it was a different kind of watching. So when you talk about, you asked me about listening for nuance uh, in a segregated place, I guess it means um, that to think about the two groups of people differently. And the fact of the matter is that until I went to high, junior high, my, um, uh, my um, specimens for listening, uh, and I consider myself a student of expression, were mostly black people. And it's, I don't think that I thought listening to their nuance took me to anything purer or better than listening to uh, white nuance when I had the opportunity to really be hearing enough white people other than on television or you know, in a movie or something like that. And I suppose um, there's a lot, in fact, in black, uh, what would have been called black English, uh, or um, the culture, the oratory culture of Negroid, Negroid people in America that's actually full of nuance. And in that nuance, there's humor, um, there is uh, critique, um, and, uh, and there's also something about nuance that I find a little bit disturbing specifically because it does indicate to you that what you're hearing on the surface is not the full story. Uh, and then when I moved into a uh, integrated junior high, I was always only listening to the different groups of white students from the outside. I was never involved with them socially. Um, 
I actually had two friends that I lost touch with, two boys uh, who now are very, very successful men, in, one in law and one in science. And they were fabulous students, like my junior high, which was the first time I was educated with white people. You knew how your intelligence was evaluated because 7-1 was the smartest group and 7-25 was not the smart people. And there were like no black people, 7-1 <laughs> to 7-4, and of course, at the end, you know, 25 were all black. But these friends of mine were like in 7-1 uh, in different years. And I, this year, came back into knowing them, and they both, I was so surprised, told me that they still haven't gotten over Garrison Junior High School. <laughs> that it was a very, very harming, horrible situation for them. Even though it didn't um, shut them down intellectually, um, it was horrible. So I think there are ways that we, in any situation where we have put ourselves in groups, uh, whether that's gender, social class, race, um, we, we have an opportunity to, we could stop listening. Mm -hmm. Because I think the reason to listen is to figure out your way in. And if you don't think there's any way in, I would imagine you would just stop listening. It also makes me think of a woman I interviewed um, in um, a, a, a prison in Maryland who talked about, as a prisoner, she sees the guards as vulnerable. Because she said, all I have to do all day is watch them. And she said, I know when one of them's had a fight at home. I know when somebody's on their period. I know. Because that's all she has. But she has every reason to be watching. Yeah. You said you um, used the term, you're a student of expression, which I've, I've uh, read. Uh, that you said before. Um, and that, I believe, comes out of your uh, experience at ACT when you were a student. So part of what I was interested in was well, when you were younger, you were not yet really a student of expression to the best of your knowledge because you didn't have a term for it like that. But um, when you began to interview people, you, uh, I think it seems that you cast a very wide net, that you were interested in all sorts of people and all sorts of expression and the use of language. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how language, uh, the relationship between language and character developed for you as you were uh, coming up in the uh, theatrical world? Well, I mean, as a child, I was always listening and always staring. So, you know, I was often told, you know, don't stare or close your mouth. It's not polite. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so I've always been a student of expression, as you say, without knowing it. And then I actually, um, the way that took respectable form was I started to study foreign languages, and I loved that. Um, and, uh, and then it wasn't until after I got out of college that I ended up here in the Bay Area and by fluke ended up uh, at ACT and, and by fluke in an acting class and, and ending up, you know, sticking around there and uh, getting my union card and um, making a little bit of money, enough not to have to be on food stamps, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, and getting an MFA. Um, and so the story that I've often told is that 
um, I had this magnificent teacher of Shakespeare, speaking Shakespeare, <clears throat> and not, not, not scholarly at all. And she told us on the first day of class that uh, in Shakespeare, the given normal rhythm is iambic pentameter, which you all know goes ba-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. She said, however, if in the second beat it turns upside down, it goes da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, then this means the person is in some kind of psychological trouble. And the example she gave is in King Lear. At a certain point, he says, never, 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 never. Everything's upside down. So this um, really was a sort of magnificent intellectual uh, opening for me that then became how I spent every unoccupied hour of my days in those three years here in San Francisco was trying to learn more about that. And then when I got out of school, I thought, well, you know, what if I were to study this with just normal human beings? Uh, and because I was looking at poems and other plays to try to see how this played out. And I met a linguist who, I, she asked me what I was doing. This is a cocktail party. And now I was at the time just trying to get on soap operas to see if I could make up enough hours to get health insurance in New York. And, and I never liked to say I was an actress anyway, because people want to know, you know, what, are you, what, have, what have I seen you on? How would I know you? <laughs> Such an offensive thing that never goes away, even now, um, that I am a working actor. Um, and, uh, you know, and so she was really interested in, in knowing, like, what, what, what interests you? What do you do? And I said, well, you know, Baba, I'm interested in how people talk and, da -da -da -da, and Shakespeare and upside down. And she said, well, I'll give you three questions that you can ask people that will guarantee that their language will do what King Lear's language did. And she was a linguist. She was a linguist. That's all you knew about her. That's all I knew about mm -hmm. her. And uh, uh, I mean, this was like just standing off to the side at a party. So the three questions were, have you ever come close to death? Do you know the circumstances of your birth? And have you ever been accused of something you didn't do? So, the, so, so those are the three. So the, so the first theater piece that Wait, I- Don't rush through these. Let's just slow, <laughs> say them one more time, if you would, a little okay. more slowly. Uh, well, I'll start with the positive one, or <laughs> presumably positive, for, for us, not for our mothers. Do, do you know the circumstances of your birth? Uh, have you ever come close to death? And have you ever been accused of something you didn't do? So the first one of these, On the Roads I Made, I had 20 actors. And I would literally walk up to somebody on the street and say, you know, I don't know you, but you look exactly like an actor I know. And if you give me an hour of your time and I'll come wherever you tell me to come, I will invite you to see yourself performed. And I would sit down with that person, whether it was a, the lifeguard at the gym, at the Y, a woman who had a secondhand clothing store, a woman who I worked next to doing temp work at J.P. Stevens, and uh, I, uh, or J.C. Penny, J.C. Penny's, Penny. different. Mm -hmm. And I, I would talk to them about whatever they did. You know, the lifeguard and I talked about the difference between lane swimming and lap swimming in Japan and New York, right? The woman who ran the second-hand clothing store had um, 
a little mixed race girl. She was white, and we talked about her daughter, the zebra. She called her daughter the zebra. So we talked about whatever, whatever they wanted to talk about. After they answered the question. No, no, we wouldn't say anything about it. They'd just talk about whatever they yeah. knew about, mm -hmm. right? Um, and uh, hair, cutting hair. I asked one hairdresser from a very fancy salon about mirrors, and he talked about mirrors and narcissism, really wonderful <laughs> things about narcissistic people, fabulous. And then, you know, sort of I'd look at my watch and about 45 minutes in, because it was going to be an hour, 45 minutes in I would start answer, asking those questions. And then I would just watch and see what would happen. And in fact, the linguist was right. The very, very interesting things started to happen when I asked those questions. So that you felt almost like a, a sea change in vocabulary or in affect? Very or different. Or, um, I think the best example for someone that you all know is uh, I was interviewing President Clinton for that, <laughs> that book, for that project, House Arrest about American Presidents, which this book, a talk to me that you read from, is about. And I, you know, when you're trying to get it, if you're a nobody, quote unquote nobody, you're not a donor, and you don't know any, um, you try to get an interview with the president, it's hard, right? So it was kind of like, well, we don't know, and how many donors do you know, and this and that, and you know, and, and you know, maybe be here, be there, be the other place, and so forth. So finally, I get this interview, and it, I'm told that I'm going to interview. Of course, this is like over a year and a half period or something, and I'm always like, got to be ready because whatever happens, you know, boom. And this is before Monica Lewinsky and all this. So um, I was told that I could interview him for ten minutes walking from a press conference that he would have just done with the president of China back to the White House from the executive, old executive, executive office building. So I had to be ready. And I'm thought, now, what is the question I can ask him that I don't have to say anything? Because I need him to talk 10 minutes nonstop and in motion, right? So as it turned out, it ended up that I met with him in the Oval Office with these 10 minutes. And my question was, Mr. President, it's a version of, have you ever been accused of something you did not do? <laughs> Mr. President, do you, feel, do, you, do you ever feel like a common criminal? <laughs> because of all that whitewater stuff that had gone, I mean, he couldn't do anything right. We forget that. He and, 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 and the first lady couldn't do anything right, right? It was always something. That man started talking, and nobody could shut him up. His staff, his staff kept popping in the room. Uh, Mr. President, you have to, you have to rest your voice. Okay, bye. And finally, Rahm Emanuel walked in after 35 minutes and said, "I'm going to shut this down right now." And that was it. But, but that's a very good question because all of you in this room, from the time you could talk or barely talk, you felt like you were being accused of something you didn't do. And my, my uh, other known plays are all about civic matters, yes. matters of justice. And in those matters, you, nobody feels that it's fair. And then this project, of course, is about have you ever come close to death? Yes. Which, um, interestingly, when you said before about the, the first question saying that there was the positive one, and the second question was, have you ever been close to death? Which, in point of fact, 
the let me down easy also makes a positive question because it, it has a way of uh, raising the subject that ultimately can only be healing and, and very positive. But point blank like that, I can see how somebody would squirm a little bit. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about some of your influences uh, as a creative spirit, as a um, essentially entrepreneurial artist, as a, as a reader, as a, uh, a human being. Uh, and I wondered, to begin with specifically in the theater, uh, if you are a fan of Ruth Draper, who was, uh, for those of you who don't know Ruth Draper, she was the great uh, mon monologist, I think that's how you pronounce it. She, she wrote and performed her own monologues. She was born in the uh, late 1880s, and in the 1950s and 60s, when she was in her 70s, she toured around the country and gave these amazing performances of her work, um, which to me is, her work is very evocative, uh, of, or your work is evocative of what she did. Um, and she was in her 70s, at the end of her career, when, when her uh, performances were for, recorded for the first time. And you can buy and listen to those performances. And she can sound like a girl of 15 in her 70s. She does things with her voice that are just amazing. And um, she was in Detroit performing, and Lily Tomlin saw her. And that was one of the main sources of Lily Tomlin's uh, interest in that genre. So I just wondered if she was, in fact, somebody that, that you have come to know or? Well, I'm not sure how I got introduced to Ruth Draper, but really it was through a student, a male student, who wanted to work with those Ruth Draper texts and recordings. And I think there's one of them about somebody who was in love with purple. Yes. And, um, and so from watching that student on that journey with Ruth Draper is also what helped me know more about her. I'm sure someone must have brought her to my attention earlier on. Mm -hmm. But you haven't read her text besides no. that one. No. That one's called Doctors and Diets. No. Yeah. And um, how about and didn't, um Didn't Jean Stapleton do? The Italian uh, lesson. The Italian lesson, yes. yeah. yeah. Um, actually, I would, I would love to send those to you because I think you'd find them very interesting. Uh, and I think you, uh, you and she both have an interest in creating this very large uh, Dickens or Balzac-like canvas populated with people uh, that the individual performance is one thing, but the cumulative effect is, is quite overwhelming. So other influences, uh, who would you say? Well, I mean, all of us. Uh live under the influence of any of us women for many reasons live under the influence of the enormous success and expansive imagination of Lily Tomlin who's also a very generous person uh, who met with me when my one of my early shows uh, got recognition uh, she and um, she sat with me and just helped me uh, gave me great advice about the business um, I, Obviously, Shakespeare, who I talked about earlier, um, Lorraine Hansberry, and even more, an interview between Mike Wallace and Lorraine Hansberry uh, when she won uh, just every prize when Raisin in the Sun was on Broadway. Um, what about that interview? 
You know, I, I was listening to it uh, in that time when I was struggling to figure out what I was going to do with my interest in language, just how to make it work. I remember washing my dishes in my apartment on a Sunday morning, and I thought, it was on the radio. I thought, who is that talking? And um, the, whoever it was, the woman, I thought, is she black? Whoever she was, and this was like the 70s that I heard this, the late 70s. Whoever she was, she was having to stand up to somebody who sounded really important. And she was not backing down, you know? For example, he sounded something like this. And I've met him since then and, and find him very interesting, obviously. But, uh, he, these aren't the words, but he sounded like um, on Broadway this year. Tennessee Williams, blah, 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 whatever play. Uh, Archibald McLeish. And then, you know, he named all these huge, big playwrights. But you won the whatever. <laughs> Arthur Miller. And yet you won the blah, blah, blah. A lot of people say that you won. This is, yeah, raising the sum is like 1955, 56. A lot of people say you won because you are a Negro. And then she sounded something like, she did not, it was something like, well, I don't think that's a very charitable uh, opinion about an honest piece of work. And, <laughs> and I would have to say that this would be the first time in history that anyone has won anything for being a Negro. <laughs> and I just was like blown away. I mean, I just stopped everything. And, and just, because who is this? And you know how you have to wait on the radio to find out who it was. And of course, I knew the raisin in the sun, for God's sake, but I didn't, had never heard her voice and heard her speaking, and I would have to say that just that sense of her voice in the world was a very big deal for me. And then, you know, poems and um, Michael Benedict, a poet I liked very much. I went to the Squaw Valley Writers Conference as a young woman, and I was sitting just like you are here, and he was reading, like, right here. And the next day I was sore all over as if I'd had like a full workout and I it very intimidated went up to him at a cocktail, you know, beer and wine thing and I said, excuse me, Mr. Benedict, but it, I just have to tell you, thank you so much for your poems. I thought they were, you're incredible. Um, and I just have to tell you that I was sore all over my body after your reading today. <laughs> and he said, well, that's really interesting because those poems were written as curses against my wife. <laughs> so on my trail, I kept meeting, you know, just more people who were telling me something, I guess, about the alchemy of language and that sometimes songs, the Picasso, the big Picasso retrospective, which I'm sure you saw in New York City in 1980, uh, an exhibition of cannibalistic art, anything that indicated to me that, back to your question about nuance, that it's not all about what's evident. 
And the thing about the training of acting uh, for most of the 20th century is on the one hand about something called psychological realism that started in the late 19th century with Stanislavski. Yeah. This idea that we have inner drives and that as actors, our enterprise should be imagining those inner drives. You know, the fact is, when you get a job, it's because of evidently what you can represent. So I was very interested in anything that was taking me towards that which is more than evident, if yeah. that makes sense. Well, I would think that you should write the contrasting volume to an actor prepares, because you really have shown a way that an actor really has to uh, be in the world. That's not all the uh, kind of sturm und drang of internal, personal little things, but rather to see the big picture. Uh, and also, I think it, it's very sweet uh, about Lorraine Hansberry. I, I believe that I read that James Baldwin believed that you were she. Was that? Uh, yes, he, he did. Well, he, I don't know for sure, but it was really like made my summer and gave me all this courage when I had quit. Uh, had I yet quit teaching? I, I would go back and forth about teaching. Had I quit? No, no. I hadn't even gotten this particular job to quit yet. But so when, when, I, when I first got to New York and was, you know, having a rough time getting a job, I worked in this soul food restaurant. And it was horrible. It was like being on a plantation. It was just awful. And I think they even wanted us to feel like that. And it was really strict. And I was a bus girl. And the whole idea was, you know, if you did certain things, you'd get to be a waiter, and then you'd get to be a bartender, and all that bunk. Well, why shouldn't restaurants have a hierarchy? Everybody else does. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, I was a bus girl. And James Baldwin was uh, uh, there. And this is long enough ago that, you know, everybody smoked. I remember him smoking. And uh, I didn't say, Mr. Ba hi, Mr. Baldwin, or anything like that. I was just, yeah. you know, <laughs> on fire that I was actually pouring water and cleaning the ashtrays for him. And as I left the table, I heard him say, she reminds me of Lorraine. And I thought, <laughs> but that's, that's, that's your food when you're a kid. I mean, that's your food. You walk down the street. One of my best friends saw Greta Garbo, and he came rushing over to my house. You would have thought he was just on one of those game shows where he went, won a car or, you know, or a city. But he, oh, my, he was different. He was different for a month. And that, that becomes your food when you're a kid, and everything is just telling you that you don't count. And, you know, yeah. yeah. Let's pick up the thread about you and teaching. Um, given what you said about, uh, in, in this text about education and how you feel about uh, how education closes hearts. Now, of course, education and teaching are two very different things. But um, what, what, is the, what was the, uh, the oil and water with you and, and academic teaching? Well, I mean, it's in my blood to be a teacher because my mother was a teacher. My aunts were teachers, my mother's friends were all teachers, and also I had a feeling of their teaching, as you've indicated by reading this, as a part of a larger, very important national enterprise, which was to do their part to make us ready for other than a segregated world, and to grow up so that you could stand for the race, and that we were all raised to 
try to do that. And then I, I teach because I'm still a student. Uh, that's really why I teach, and because I love people and ideas, and I love teaching. Now, I don't feel that after I've been doing it since 1973, and I, one of my biggest joys was to walk into an office at ACT and to not have to say very much to talk them into letting me teach when I was really still a kind of a student there. And it, it was a, one of my first jobs that was a great job. And I, I love the classroom. It's a place where we have an abundance of imagination and just anything can happen. We have all of our imagination. We have all of our doubt. And just we can just do great stuff. I love the magic of that. But I don't think I've really had many students over the years. I, I think I've probably had about eight who really I call my students. Because I do think it's so, so much chance and magic is involved if when you really can hit someone on a kind of a road of their not knowingness and your not knowingness. And the two knots are this knot-knot that are positive and it's joyous and sometimes contentious and hard. Mm -hmm. What I don't like that has happened is that from those early days at ACT in 1973, my students have become wealthier and more educated in terms of all the things they know. And most of them, if they didn't go to private school for that time, they had someone who took great care of them and paid an enormous amount of attention to their knowing. But now I find such cynicism in the room. And I'm also, and I, I would say this point blank to the people who are kind enough to give me a job at, now at New York University, it's so expensive. And I, I just don't think that process of getting there to pay your $45,000 a year, there's so many people who get cut out of the sheer joy of learning. And I miss them. Where are they? And we don't have anything built in, like in sports, where they go, they'll go anywhere. I read last summer Pat Summit's book about, you know, trying to, some kid she wanted in, in, I don't know, upstate New York or Connecticut or wherever, this woman was about to deliver a baby and she was so driven to get that kid plucked out of wherever to get on her team. We don't have that type of imagination about intellect and we don't have any way of knowing. So it's quite uniform who ends up in my room. They even sound alike. I could teach a whole semester on trying to get everybody, boys and girls, to stop talking like this. Listen to this. I was reading Rilke. <laughs> and on page 35, boys and girls all sound like that. This what, disingenuous way of making everything sound like a question. But I still love it, and I still go in there, and I, I, I hope that, you know, we, have, we find some kind of way to get those rooms to be back full of, of difference. Yeah. Well, this, I mean, I think ties into my uh, 
perhaps emotional response to what I was reading before, um, because I grew up very much in a household where um, Head Start was... Well, your mother. Yeah, uh, very important, and what education represented. Um, and we've come so far from that uh, idea with the whole... Uh, and I'm not even sure how it happened, and it seemed to have happened very quickly, but the affirmative action issue, I mean, in the whole, you know, of course, it all goes back to the 80s and to Reagan and all that, but somehow it's been wholesale, this idea that um, education uh, is not the answer, um, and there's been nothing offered that really is the answer. And I just wondered, uh, from what you're saying, we seem, to be we seem to be giving degrees, universities give degrees to 21-year-olds uh, who essentially can't write a paragraph, let alone a sentence, and it gets passed along, gets passed along. Uh, the literacy of the population is declining. Uh, and yet, I do feel very much that it is perhaps those very people who don't get into the universities, who have that grit and that determination to, to, to be artists or to be whatever they want to be, but to have to do it against the flow, who don't have it easy, that will, will perhaps carry us through. And interestingly to me, that is, it, it is largely a, a kind of a distinction between uh, haves and have-nots. Uh, and that is the divide that we're up against across the board. I was wondering um, if you had a sense or if you wanted to talk a little bit about um, where you feel hope, where you feel uh, there are ways in which we, uh, we are moving ahead. Well, I think if anybody in this room knows ways that uh, in education we're moving ahead, I would really love to know about it. No, 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 you may, you may know some wonderful things. You're, you're nodding, you, you may know. Um, and I, I have to say, in credit to my students, they can all write paragraphs. And when I meet them, in fact, by freshman year, they can write paragraphs, they can make songs, they can do plays, they can do performances, because they have had enormous advantages. You know, uh, but I have taught in a certain state school that I won't mention. It is a very good state school where the writing was absolutely appalling, and you want to know how they even get at a high school. Um, well, I guess I really don't know. However, I'll, I'll, I always try in these public fora to be pleasant and uplifting. <laughs> <laughs> so this, this usually gets people excited. So what I will say about hope is the following. Is everybody writing this down, I hope? <laughs> this is what you have to remember about hope. Uh, Cornell West, who I performed in my play about the Los Angeles race riots, um, distinguished for me the difference between optimism and hope. Now, Americans are addicted to hope, but they're really usually talking about optimism, right? So, uh, so this is what he says, is that optimism, he says, optimism and hope are different. Optimi optimism is based on the notion that there's enough evidence out there that things are going to be better, much more rational, deeply secular. Whereas hope, 
looks at the evidence and says, it doesn't look good at all. <laughs> doesn't look good at all. We're going to go beyond the evidence to make new possibilities based on visions that become contagious to allow people to engage in heroic actions, always against the odds, no guarantee whatsoever. That's hope. And he concludes that by saying, I'm a prisoner of hope. I'm a prisoner of hope. And I find that the real hope is in those kind of magical people, like the woman I represent in the play who worked at Charity Hospital, a hospital for New poor Orleans. people in New Orleans, who was, on the one hand, very disillusioned by the fact that uh, the government didn't come for the poor people. And on six days, they were still there and that she learned more. She's a young white woman, went to Barter, grew up with a lot of advantages. She learned more about the real desperation of, of her black colleagues and patients, uh, even though she was tried and true, you know, real warrior at Charity Hospital. And you get the sense, even as she nails it and claims it and says, this is so wrong you get the sense that she's going to go to work tomorrow. And in fact, by seeing how dark and wrong it is, that she's animated to do more. Or when I went to Haiti uh, last year, Paul Farmer's people, I went to visit some of them. And you know, these kind of people who really believe, as the young doctor in New Orleans does, you know, she says at one point in the play that um, she goes, you know, we have people come in to train a charity, and even though they have a tremendous opportunity to see exactly what it is like, in some sense, I mean without living it, to be poor and to open your heart and open your mind to these fantastic people that we have come into our hospital as patients, that there are people who have advantages and know-how and uh, great ability, who are not afraid of poor people, who don't think it's a disease they can catch. And I really feel that, 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 that within the decade, more of them will begin to spark our imaginations the way that people were able to spark my imagination, your mother's imagination that led a mother like, like your mother with advantages to be so passionate about Head start, or I suspect many of you in this room, that there will be more young people coming along who uh, want a better world for everybody. It's not just for them. And equally as many who are happy to have it for them, their children, you know, that, that group. Um, your one portrayal and Let Me Down Easy that I think resonated with me the most was of your Aunt Lorraine. And I think part of that is because I feel like it's the first time I've seen you on stage where I'm seeing not only a character, but I'm seeing some of the artist because of the genetic connection. That you can't help in portraying your aunt to, to be somehow yourself. And I was hoping you'd talk a little bit about um, in all of the work that you do, you talk to people, you record them, you make scripts, you create a play. Uh, it's one voice after another. And I wonder, um, and, and these authentic voices add up, and I wonder where you are, because you are somehow always behind that. And in seeing your aunt, 
I felt that I was seeing somehow a little bit more of you. Is there, um, you, you wrote that um, when people ask you, you know, do you become these characters, you said, I'm not the other and can never be the other. I can only try to bridge the gap. It's interesting because some of, I can see how you could feel that internally as well, that with an aunt who is not you but is you and somehow you're bridging the gap and each of us does that in our own personal history. Um, but how would you describe your own authentic voice? Or what aspect of you, if, if you were to interview yourself? It's not very interesting. I mean, I try. Um, in fact, for this play, one version of it in, in uh, Austin, I played myself. I, it wasn't very interesting. Um, how so? How did it manifest? Well, first of all, my voice coach, who's uh, my dialect coach, who's a genius, thought it was ridiculous that <laughs> I wanted to then, you know, I had one of my staff interview me. And, and, and you know, it's hard for me really to believe it. You know, that the so, you wrote the questions or your staff wrote the questions? They, they asked the question, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, then, you know, I felt that I had to apply myself to myself the same way I apply myself. Like if, if Mike does a self-portrait, which he's done, you know, he still has to use paint. I mean, I can't just get up and just be like this. That would be reality TV. That's, <laughs> that's not my enterprise. So the same artistry would have to be applied to me. So first of all, my dialogue coach thought it was ridiculous that I felt I had to study my sounds. So I mean, it's just, I couldn't even get cooperation in my own staff to help me with this. Um, what was the motivation? What made you think that we you We thought wanna... that it could be, I don't know, maybe something in an interview I did with John Lahr, that I interviewed with John Lahr, who was in the play at the time. We thought that it might be interesting to do that because this play about something that doesn't escape any of us, our mortality, including me, right? But it, it wasn't interesting. I mean, I don't know, you know, I guess there are probably people out here who think about what's authentic and does authenticity exist. I would say that playing Aunt Lorraine more in the process takes me to images that I, uh, either recall fondly or things I forgot that help, that take me back to my roots. And so it's sort of like autobiography in action, suddenly remembering things about my grandmother who is alluded to in that piece, or Aunt Esther who was also a huge figure in my life. And that's that Camus quote in Letters to a Young Artist that I never know very well, but it, the bad version of it, my version is that a man's work is little more than a journey through his life to, through, the, through the detours of art to retrieve those first simple images that found access to his heart. So that's not the real quote. It's a much better, more elegant, elegant quote than that of Camus. But so I do think that Playing Aunt Lorraine gives me a chance to go back to those, those great and simple images that first found access to his heart. So playing Aunt Lorraine takes me back to that essential stuff. And when other people are speaking, I have to imagine, I have to imagine when Lauren Hutton talks about her mother, 
I have to have an image of her mother or um, that I make up, right? Or I can go look up stuff to find out who, who are they speaking about. But in this case, the imagery, at least, is all stuff I know. What is up next with you? I don't know. <laughs> next question. Um, I think we would like to take a few questions. Um, Anna has to get back to the theater, so we're not going to take a lot of time. And also, when we're finished, if we could, I could ask you not to come up and shake hands or make contact because she is protecting her health and wants to keep a, a barrier around her. Well, not that we feel anyone here is unhealthy, Eric. <laughs> Just being overly cautious about catching a cold. Yes. I am going to repeat the questions so that uh, for the recording and those in the back. The question, in a nutshell, was why has there never been a treatment of the story of Harriet Tubman? Well, probably if we were to call up some studio executive <laughs> and see if their secretary would get him to take the call, they'd say because foreign sales would be bad. That um, stories with about black Americans don't sell abroad. And if we were to say that we just wanted to do it here, you'd probably have to have Oprah Winfrey play the part in order to get it done. <laughs> well, you're laughing, but that's true. On the other hand, she did give her body over to Beloved, that magnificent novel of Toni Morrison, and it, it didn't do well, no matter what. So that's what would be said. But uh, that doesn't shut out finding a way to make such a film in the nonprofit sector. And you're obviously passionate about it. Never know, maybe you could get it going. Howard? Having seen your show, but I understand it's to do with hospitals. <coughs> Why is hospital food so bad? <laughs> that is a fantastic question. The question... Has the, Alice Waters taken on hospitals not yet? Not yet, one thing at a time. The question is, uh, is about the food in hospitals. I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's ridiculous. It's got sugar. It's got everything that's bad. It's probably not any better than the food in, um, uh, in airports. And obviously, for all that there's our national concern about obesity, uh, the hospital administrators don't know about it. And I play a hospital administrator. And I even said, oh, at one point, I have to bring my lunch in. So I said to the producer, I said, you know, I think Mrs. Acolytus, that's my character. I said, I think she's probably on a, a diet, because they had in the script that it was gonna, my lunch was going to be, I don't know, hoagies or I don't know uh, what, french fries, what I said. And the food that the prop person made was so perfect and so horrible <laughs> um, as hospital food. But I was saying, you know, has Alice Waters taken on hospitals yet? Uh, she's got a good thing to work on. I mean, I think she's starting with um, children in schools. Well, schools, yeah. That's a beginning, yeah. edible schoolyard. Yeah. But 
Uh, I think the question about uh, hospitals is that, by and large, there's so much um, uh, alienation between departments that the food really doesn't speak to the, the healing part, and that there is no sense, very little sense, of nutrition. It's about the same way that uh, there's a bottom line about making movies, there's a bottom line about being in hospitals, and it's about how much money you have. So it doesn't mean that good food is necessarily going to cost more, but it hasn't been pursued. That's my answer. I think that's right. Yes, Steve. Have you ever been close to death? <laughs> the question is, have you ever been close to death? Uh, I was in a, a car accident when I first got here on the 101. It really shook me up. And uh, somebody was high. I mean, he even, I remember him even saying it, you know, oh man, I don't know, it was high. And uh, I just ended up on the extreme side of the road and got out of my car and sat there, cried. That was, really shook me up, you know, just the chanceness of things. And then I guess we could look at it two other ways. And um, uh, the passing of my mother, I didn't see her actually die, but I would say those, that last day before the day she died was something that brought me uh, closer to mortality. Your question? What can you tell us about the circumstances of your birth? Well, <laughs> the question the person, is, what can you tell me about the circumstances of your birth? The person who would tell that story best is Aunt Lorraine. Yes. And uh, I gave a dinner party when I left uh, Washington, where I performed. This was the beginning of the tour of this show was Washington, and so many people had been kind to me, giving me parties and stuff. So I decided to give this party my last night there. And one of the guests was Madeleine Albright, and. Secretary Madeleine Albright, and at a certain point she said, I think we should all go around the table and say how we met Anna. And so people did that, and I had brought Aunt Lorraine over from Baltimore to come. And it was just absolutely stunning because, you know, she said, well, I don't, I think she had a hard time deciding. And she said this with no humor. She was very uh, passionate. She said, I think she had a hard time deciding if she wanted to be with us. Mm -hmm. And she said, I had to get special permission to be in the room, because in those days, you know, a sister couldn't be there, but I was able to talk the doctor into it. So there was this sense of how much she wanted to be there. My sister, she was, she's the only living woman in my mother's family now. She was the next after my mother, very close to my mother. And I was the first child in our family. My mother was in labor for five days in an all-black hospital in a segregated town. I came down the birth canal, and I turned back up. And when I tell people about it now, they get very upset, and they say, why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do that? Why didn't they do a C-section? They didn't do anything. And so Aunt Lorraine talked about when I was finally born, she was there. And how I had, she said, I still can see those little marks on your, your skull, because they pulled me forceps. out with forceps. Yeah. 
And when she came to see the show and watch, she'd seen it in New York, had seen herself portrayed and was, I think, very proud. And all of her friends were like, now we have to put up with her saying she's on Broadway. <laughs> and I said, I said, it's off Broadway. But, but so then in Washington, she came and that and they came up to New York, a group of 100, you know, from Baltimore. <laughs> and so, of course, they came to Washington, another group of like 100 or something or two busloads. And this time she arrived because there's a, a line in Aunt Lorraine's material that she says uh, how much her older sister, my Aunt Esther, loved her and said, you know, she bought me shoes. I don't think I ever got my pink socks. So she shows up in Washington in this gray suit with pink baby socks to her lapel. And my assistant said she was crying the whole time in the elevator, you know. Oh, I just can still see those little marks <laughs> on her forehead, crying. I wish her mother was here. So now, to my theory of what did I do that broke my patterns, um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an unusual case because I act anyway. But when I told you that story about Aunt Lorraine, I started to act out parts of it. You know, I acted like her. So this work that I've been doing for 30 years is really best described in uh, uh, an essay that Bertolt Brecht wrote, not about me, um, <laughs> called Street Scene, when he talks about how there's an organic he doesn't use that word, but a natural kind of theater that happens if somebody tries to tell you about an event so that they saw an accident, they would immediately start to try to act out that car accident, even if it was to say that, well, it was like, boom, right? So what I, when I'm trying to get people to go into when I talk to them is their own performance of themselves, a real different kind of a performance of themselves, not something they saw about how they should act as a woman or a man, as a cowboy or a supermodel or whatever, but that it really goes into this other kind of performance. And so when I was telling you the circumstances of my birth, I chose to tell you that through performing Aunt Lorraine telling you that. And that's the kind of theater that I'm looking for inside of storytelling. And then you came back up. <laughs> the birth canal. Yeah, and then it came back up. <laughs> to wrap it up. Yes. Uh, I was the guy who was nodding when you were talking about education and hope. And the reason is, my answer would be you. That every performance I've gone to of yours, no matter how dark or troubling the material, the fact of you exercising empathy to bring it to us gives me hope. So my question is, how do you overcome the, citizen, the cynicism of those students that you were talking about earlier? Well, the question, you just, you, okay, go the ahead. question is, how do you overcome the cynicism of students? The fact is, it's so thin, that cynicism. You know, that's what's the beauty of them and why I keep going back into the classroom. It's so thin. They don't want to be cynical. It's another stance posture that they've seen, that they've taken on. But the fact is that all of you in this room learned how to move and how to talk and express yourselves when you were much, much younger. And that basic ability to put yourself in the world with your expression, 
and your curiosity, I really believe, is in everybody. And the beauty about teaching in the arts, after all, I'm not teaching physics or, or business. Um, I'm teaching people who are really aspiring to be artists. I know that that posture in the right environment, and I create an extraordinarily controlled environment down to where people sit and everything else, that if I make an environment that through subtle ways indicates to them that that, that veil of cynicism can leave and the other thing is welcome, eventually things will start to happen in that magical environment. And people in a healthy environment, and I take great strides to interview people, and I can choose who I want to teach, right? That to make they, healthy people will aspire for the authenticity that they see in their presence. And they have little tricks, like I say things like, um, use your education to find your questions, not your answers because a question is a quest that will accompany you and be your friend throughout your life when other things disappear from around you. Uh, I tell them that confidence is overrated and that I embrace doubt. And then in a world full of so many things that are unknown, what's really important is to build your stamina for not knowing and doubt. And please rehearse that in this room. I will help you with that. So I have a lot of little tricks that I play. And then I just try to create the most organized environment and the most respectful environment and an environment full of, uh, I try to find some people for it that I am sure have love uh, and who will be loving. And um, that's what I do. And thank you for the compliment and the question. One more question, David. If you were to become interested in the American public elementary school system, how would you apply your talents? I would first of all find somebody who knows a lot about it, because I don't. I would, I would find someone who is uh, Pentecostal about it. And I would first say, will you tutor me for a year? And then, I would say, here's what I have. Is there anything I can do to help you with what I do have? And here's what I don't have. So given what I don't have and what I do have, is there some kind of way I can help you stay as full of your fever about this? That's what I would do. Uh, I think David's question about um you know, what would you do with the American public education system stems from the, the fact that uh, Anna represents something that is hopeful and creative. Uh, I know, I can imagine that the reason that she's on things like the Council for Foreign Relations and the Museum of Modern Art Board is because she's a resource. And I just really wanted to thank her for today giving us and sharing with us in her presence of that resource. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you.